I've experimented with making shampoos since the days I used to use Castile soap. Most of us have tried everything to make a great shampoo, just short of getting a freaking bachelor's degree in chemistry. That's right. There may be some things I've missed, but here are the top five basic things I wished I knew before attempting to make a shampoo. Number one. Shampoos are just meant to clean. You better believe it, honey. This seems self-evident, but you have to understand it in the context of trying to dupe commercial products. Shampoos are meant to clean dirt, oil, and debris out of the hair and off the scalp. That's it. Shampoos are not meant to condition the hair. I'm sorry. They're not meant to impart shine. I'm sorry. They're not meant to lessen frizz specifically or particularly. They're not meant to seal split ends. I don't think you can do that. But none of the cosmetic puffery I used to believe has helped me make a good shampoo. Let's see if we can explain it. Whenever making anything, start with the goal of the actual product. What is it? What do you want to do? Stick to that. Trying to do 12 different things with one product will cause unnecessary frustration. Companies who sell commercial products have an enormous amount of resources in comparison to us. They also have sizable marketing budgets. So if they want to convince us they've made a 12-in-1 shampoo, they're going to try to do that. It doesn't mean we should try to dupe that allegedly amazing product at home. There are simply way too many unknown factors. An effective shampoo will just remove oils, dirt, and debris from the hair and the scalp. Don't use more than 1% total oils in a shampoo. Vegetable oils are really not the reason your hair doesn't feel like straw after you shampoo nor are they the reason that your hair is shiny after you rinse it off like the heavy lifter ingredients that we usually run away from at home are performing that job i suggest to skip oils altogether in a shampoo unless it's directly part of how you'll be marketing the product to your target audience like if your target audience wants a castor oil shampoo or something you gotta use castor oil but remember, shampoos are simply meant to clean, so just make sure the castor oil is used at less than 1% or else the shampoo could feel ineffective and may not lather well at all. No, 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 don't do that. Now, from my understanding, the surfactants in the shampoo can't tell the difference between, you know, build up on the hair or your actual great product that you just added to it. The oil, dirt, and germs come off with it and your skin is fresh and clean. That means it's gonna get washed right down the drain with the dirt and the oils. Bottom line, save, please, save all of your expensive additives, your great extracts, and all of those good oils for your leave-in conditioners, your sprays, your serums, the things that you're gonna leave on your hair, unless you wanna do what the big boys do, which is cosmetic puffery. The following is a clip from private label manufacturer Steve Miller, the owner of Gables Cosmetics via the Beauty Health Travel Channel on YouTube. My name is Steve Miller and I own the Gables Cosmetics Company in Los Angeles, California. It's one of the last of the family-owned personal care manufacturing companies left in the United States. It's called cosmetic puffering. The FDA actually gave it a name since see, they figure you ladies won't get hurt by putting in things like... Uh, Oh, like we, we, we mentioned, I got jojoba, I got aloe vera, I got vitamins, I got every botanical that you think under the sun. Everybody has a good idea what botanical they think is the best. Everybody's heard of them and everybody's been sold on them and everybody's been recommended by a friend or a neighbor or another girlfriend who says, oh, if it doesn't have vitamin E, it isn't going to be good. Or cocoa butter, or shea butter, or 
Does it do anything to the hair? Actually, it doesn't because if the detergent is doing its job, once you add the water, start the agitation on the hair, Mr. Detergent here thinks the vitamin E is just another piece of scum on your hair and washes it back out. I get a kick out of all this. Is Some of it's just marketing. Number two, don't get tripped up by claims ingredients. I thought I told you to kill that story. As I said before, the recommendation is never to add more than 1% total of oils into a shampoo. Many of the commercial products we have have a long list of great ingredients. What they don't tell us is the percentage of the ingredient in the actual product. It's quite possible many of those great ingredients are added at 0.05% or 0.1% just so the marketing people can make the claim that it's actually in the product. Quote, claims ingredients are ingredients added at an extremely low percent in order to market that product to a specific audience. How dare you? It's part of that cosmetic puffery that everybody learned about from chemist Steve Miller's epic videos about cosmetic manufacturing. Let's say your audience is looking for hair care products with sugarcane extract because they've heard that it does something wonderful for the hair, okay? You add 0.1% sugarcane extract to a shampoo. Technically, you can claim that it contains sugarcane extract. It's true, but it's not the ingredient doing the work of keeping the hair from feeling like straw. It just isn't. Plus, it'll be washed down the drain because the surfactant ingredients will get rid of it. What I say goes, see? I'm the law around here. Yes, I was taken aback too when I learned all of this, but technically they're not lying. They're not lying. It's in the product. It's us, the public that makes connections which don't exist sometimes. For example, let's say you like a curl-defining shampoo, a quote, curl-defining shampoo that contains panthenol, and you wanna make your own at home. So some people may make the connection that the panthenol is helping with curl definition. It's not. Now look here, you. Watch out for claims ingredients when it comes to trying to dupe a shampoo at home. Stick to what you know makes your hair look and feel good. Now, now at home, you're probably using things like herbal infusions and teas, which may or may not have an effective amount of the actual extract that you're looking for. But sometimes when you make a product that uses a tea or an herbal infusion as a base, it actually makes your hair look shiny. Bottom line, try to figure out what the claims ingredients are and simply ignore them. But wait a minute. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. What I do is find the parfum or the fragrance in the list of ingredients on a commercial product and just ignore every extract listed after that because I don't think they're going to be in the product at a high enough percentage to actually do anything. Some of the chemists say to ignore extracts altogether, but <laughs> let's move on. The following is a clip from cosmetic chemist and author Perry Romanowski, the founder of ChemistCorner.com from a webinar available on YouTube. Let me tell you a little bit about my background, in case you don't know. I always had an interest in science, which led me to getting a degree in chemistry from DePaul University. I interviewed for a few jobs, and I ended up as a formulation chemist at Alberto Culver. Now there, I worked for over 17 years, creating hair care and skincare products. Now, not only did I get a good background in formulating, but I learned a lot about the whole cosmetic product development process. Now, while cos consumers use cosmetics to improve the way their skin and hair feels, this isn't the primary reason uh, that they initially buy cosmetics. Consumers first buy cosmetics because they like the story that the products tell. They like the packaging or the way that the product looks and smells. And to help support the marketing story and the claims made about the product, formulators have to include claims ingredients. 
Now, claims ingredients, and sometimes they're called fairy dust, these are ingredients added to a formula at a low level for the primary purpose of getting to put the ingredient name on the label. This includes ingredients like natural extracts, vitamins, proteins, lots of biotechnology, and lots of fanciful made-up ingredient names. They are put in the formula to have, you know, they're not put in there to have some sort of measurable effect, but almost invariably, they don't have effect. I mean, they might have an effect, but usually they don't. However, most consumers need a story to believe when they buy their cosmetics, and these ingredients really will help support that story. Brands that don't include claims ingredients are much less successful in the marketplace. Number three, not all surfactants thicken with salt or sodium chloride. Please. Everybody knows that adding a little salt can thicken some homemade surfactant-based shampoos. However, depending on which ingredient you've used, salt will not thicken the shampoo and you'll have to use a separate thickening ingredient to improve the viscosity. Many of us have the goals of making sulfate-free shampoo. That's right. Because we've had bad experiences with bad formulas from major manufacturers, but some of the sulfate-free ingredients use surfactants that don't thicken with salt. And so what do you do? Talk to a good chemist to figure out why these ingredients won't thicken with salt. But here's a little info from UL Prospector about that. Quote, salt thickens by reducing micelle charge density, helping to promote the conversion of spherical micelles to rod-shaped micelles. What? What the but what does that even mean? <laughs> For our purposes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What most formulators need to focus on is what to use, how to use it, and what not to use. Non-ionic, sulfate-free surfactants like desyl glucoside and lauryl glucoside don't thicken well with salt. It may require a separate surfactant thickening ingredient to get the viscosity we all love to see in a shampoo. You better believe it, honey. According to IPCS, the following classes of surfactants will, will, will thicken with salt. The alkyl sulfates, example, like sodium lauryl sulfate. The alkyl ether sulfates, example, sodium lauryl ether sulfate. Fatty acid taurides, example, sodium cocoyl methyl taurate. The fatty acid isothionates, like sodium cocoyl isothionate. The following classes of surfactants will not. They won't thicken with salt. Sulfosulcinate one of my personal favorites that's the disodium lauryl sulfosulcinate the and i may be butchering this the acyl glutamates that's sodium cocoyl glutamate and the amphoterics the that's your cocomidopropyl betaine and your hydroxysultanes now non-ionic surfactants also don't thicken well with salt either those are your diesel glucosides y'all know that polyglucoside that's what that is bottom line figure out what ingredients you have or what you should buy. Then see if you can think it in with salt or if you need a separate ingredient to turn it into an attractive shampoo, okay? Many surfactants we gravitate towards when making homemade shampoo falls under this class of surfactants. Hello, diesel glucoside. So be ready to keep experimenting with various thickening ingredients, even the ones that are not natural. You make it seem so easy. When you get dirty, the dirt sticks in this oil. Germs do too. You can't get them off with plain water. Number four, the best shampoos contain a combination of surfactants. Let's see if we can explain it. 
Great shampoos are made up of a combination of surfactant ingredients, you guys. Shampoos usually contain an anionic surfactant, a non-anionic surfactant, and an amphoteric surfactant. Amphoteric surfactants are also referred to as zwitteronic surfactants. Don't ask me if I'm pronouncing that correctly. How can you ask such a question? Anionic surfactants have a negative charge. These are your primary surfactants. They are the workhorses. They are the category that does a lot of the removal of the dirt and the oil and the buildup. However, they can be a little harsh by themselves. So that's why they're often used in combination. Now, the dreaded SLS is an anionic, okay? And so is ammonium lauryl sulfate. But while running away from, from SLS, a common anionic cleansing surfactant many of us gravitate towards is actually sodium C1416 alpha olefin sulfonate. How do you spell that? Again, another one of my favorites. You'll know this as alpha olefin if you're familiar with some of the formulas at curlyt.com. But I need to make a shampoo that feels like a true commercial shampoo. I'll reach for this first. Another great anionic surfactant is disodium laurinth sulfur sulfonate or just plain sulfur sulfonate how do you spell that how do you spell that it's a quote mild anionic surfactant meant to be used with other surfactants in a shampoo it's said to have good emulsifying and foaming qualities allegedly i usually mix the alpha olefin and sulfur sulfonate in one formula they work well together actually if looking specifically for anionic surfactants look at the inky the inci the anionics often have something like sulfosulfonate in their title or sulfonate or taurate or sarcosinate you know what there are more but you may be more likely to find the ones that i just listed now non-ionic surfactants have no charge these are known as secondary surfactants they're used to help combat any harshness from the anionic surfactants for example, the non-ionic glucoside you've heard that before, is mild and is said to be good at producing lather. And so a lot of people use that one. You'll find non-ionic surfactants used heavily in those baby shampoos or shampoos meant for sensitive skin. Now, if you want to make a gentle shampoo, start with a combo of non-ionic cleansing surfactants. They may or may not work quite well as you want them to or as quickly as you want them to, though. Amphoteric surfactants, or is what ironic, have two oppositely charged groups, which means they can behave like anionic or cationic surfactants, depending on the pH. Now, are y'all still with me? <laughs> and you might also think that all this doesn't matter. Well, that's where you'd be wrong. I know this is complicated, but not really. You know, there are betaines like cocoa betaine or cocomidopropyl betaine, and there are sultanes like like hempcetamidopropyl hydroxysultane. How do you spell that? Now that's a new one for me. I'm still experimenting with that one. They're mild and are often used to thicken shampoo formulas. I've specifically used cocoa betaine to thicken up a watery shampoo. I, you know, it's what you add after you've mixed the your anionics and your non-ionics and your water and you want to make it a little bit thicker and so I just add cocoa betaine at that point because if you add it before then it turns the whole surfactant phase into a big clumpy mess. Sometimes they are mild and are often used to thicken shampoo formulas. I've specifically used cocoa betaine to thicken up a watery shampoo formula, but it also has had the added benefit of greatly boosting the lather of my shampoo. The following is a clip from private label manufacturer, Steve Miller, the owner of Gables Cosmetics, via the Beauty Health Travel Channel. 
on YouTube. Clairol, by the way, invented the terms which I love, lather, rinse, and repeat. And that means use it again. Because when you use soap, you did it twice, made you feel good, kind of make sure you got it clean. In a detergent, it does not happen. One of the ingredients that we add to all detergents uh, is bubble bath. That's when you look at the water being first, this detergent being second, and the third being a bubble bath, which we, you know, like any betaine on it that you'll see on the label, but it's ingredient number three. It's a foam enhancer because detergents do not, do not lather for crap. We had to put the bubble bath in to make clients feel happy. Does it do anything for the hair? Not really. Uh, does it help you? Not really. Does it feel good? Uh, kinda. Does it make the client think they're doing something? You bet. And when we do contracts for customers, the first thing I ask out of any contractor is, okay, so how much lather do you want in the bottle? And they will tell me. I had one customer actually came in. He had uh, perfume he wanted and, and bubble bath. And I asked him how much detergent he wanted. He says, I don't even care if he has detergent. I just want people to feel good in the shower. And so the product we made for him basically was bubble bath in a bottle with a lot of perfume, sold a shampoo. Go figure, I don't care. His checks didn't bounce, life was good, and he's out there peddling it. I won't tell you the brand because I don't want you to, if you like it, you know, you may think that's cool to have tons and tons of bubbles. Because people judge a bottle on how thick it is, you know, is it really heavy and syrupy? I mean, that's one of the important. Then the next thing they do is they gotta smell it. Aside from that, then of course, what it has to do is, is when you do it, bubbles. Lots of bubbles. Number five, don't shy away from the polyquats and cones. What? Okay, okay, okay. Hear me out. <laughs> oh, through experimentation, I've come to understand that ingredients or the ingredients doing a lot of the extra work are the ones with a bad reputation. What? I have high porosity hair, so I noticed these things. Both polyquaternium and any silicones actually help improve shampoo formulas in a positive way. I know, I know we were all told one thing and it's turning out not to be quite accurate. For example, polyquat 7 is a cationic conditioning agent that adds more slip to a shampoo formula. It makes the shampoo feel better when applying to the hair. It gives it lubricity. It's great to use when you want the final shampoo to remain clear. Polyquats also have anti-static and film forming capabilities so when you, it gives those types of values to whatever you put it into another great addition is the polyquat 10 it too is cationic how do you spell that it's detangling and thickening and works well even with cleansing surfactants it sticks to the hair proteins and helps with frizz it helps in the deposition of silicone on the hair too a small percentage of 0.2 that's fine it's fine. A small percentage is fine. Many naturals worry about buildup with polyquats, but in a shampoo at 0.2%? A simple yet shocking fact. I don't think you need to be so bothered by that. It's much more likely that excess use of your post-shampoo products, like your leave-in conditions, your treatments, your gel stylers, etc., are causing your actual buildup, and not the shampoo with the polyquat in it. The lack of shampooing the hair as necessary also causes buildup. So washing the hair with a sulfate shampoo once, you know, every once in a while is um, actually helping to remove the buildup. Say it ain't so. Oops, my bad. Sorry for interrupting. Don't completely run away from it, y'all. I know we've been told so many things over the past few years about what to do and what not to do. Now, silicone ingredients actually perform a service for dry, damaged hair. Let me say that again. You're not eating silicones, you're not ingesting silicones. They are going on your body, but you're not ingesting them at a high enough percentage for them to actually do anything. And trust me, they've already tested all of that stuff out. Let me say it again. Silicone ingredients actually perform a service for dry, damaged 
hair, especially for my usually high porosity curls. I still can't bring myself to use straight dye methicone. Please. <laughs> Even after saying that, I still can't bring myself to use straight dye methicone in a formula on purpose. I just, I, ugh. Maybe I'll get there, maybe I won't, but I'm not gonna stress about it. Don't nobody got time for that. But I've started to incorporate emodimethicone into some of my shampoo and conditioner formulas because my hair, like I said, again, is normally high porosity. If you have high porosity hair, definitely consider incorporating Polyquat 7 or Polyquat 10 in a rinse off product or emodimethicone in your leave-ins. Like if you're unsure, start at very, very low percentages and see if you'll have a positive effect. The bottom line is don't run away from the very ingredients and maybe doing the heavy lifting of keeping your hair from feeling like straw or keeping your hair from feeling tangled and frizzy after rinse off. So please don't be afraid to make use of real full body shampoo on your curls as necessary. I ditched co-washes a long time ago because I make use and test so many conditioners and serums and other products on my hair that I need to get those products off the hair and prep it for the next product to test. The following is a clip from private label manufacturer, Steve Miller, the owner of Gables Cosmetics, via the Beauty Health Travel Channel on YouTube. Along comes World War I, a guy named Hinkle, German scientist, and he invented a product called sodium lauryl sulfate, SLS. Everybody knows it either by SLS or sodium lauryl sulfate. It's been the workhorse of detergents since 1950. There are other variations of sulfated shampoos and sulfated cleaners, but he discovered that a sulfate would work with grease, add water in any temperature, like all temperature. You know, you can use cold water, warm water, any temperature you feel good. You put a sulfonated product, mix with the grease, smear it around, and the dirt comes right off. And this is how you clean your people, soldiers, anything you have. It became a very nice product. Everybody started using it. It was easier to make. Put it in a bottle. Everybody liked it. It was a liquid uh, as opposed to the bars, which you, you, know, you smeared around or you rubbed on a wash rag and then scrubbed your body. Because when you use a soap, you actually have to use manipulation, which is why at the sink today, you still use that technique. Just like the scrub board or the Maytag washing machines or people beating their clothes over a rock. Manipulation with soap removed dirt. Today, detergent basically would bond with the grease form a soap molecule and wash itself out. If you take a client, wet its head, take your soap, whichever brand you use, pour it on the client, let it run into the sink and rinse, the hair will become clean without the manipulation. But since you guys have learned to do it and it's become a tradition, people do not and will not expect or accept the fact that you don't do the scrubby part. And they love the scrubby part. I love the scrubby part. It feels good when somebody's scrubbing my hair. Scrub away. Don't waste a lot of time scrubbing. It's not necessary. Uh, and I don't want to say it's totally superfluous, but it helps move the stuff around a while. I and mean, when you rinse it off, it's clean. I'm still experimenting with shampoos like the rest of y'all, but I wanted to present you guys with some info I've been able to piece together so far from that research and experimentation. So, happy DIYing. So... What happens next? Now, if you're actually looking for a shampoo formula to make for yourself at home, click the video on the screen now. And as always, get more recipes and formulas, including the full ingredients list, instructions, my notes, and other information at curlyt.com. Follow on social media, subscribe at YouTube or Odyssey, or become a patron at Patreon if that's more convenient for you. I'll talk to you guys soon.